Good morning. Today we'll be reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 18 on page 331. To Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amma from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zohab, Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When To, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with To. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Seraiah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Palathites. And David's sons were royal advisors.
Well, thank you very much indeed, Joyce, for that reading. I've uh, spent my week trying to work out how to pronounce some of those names. That was uh, incredibly helpful. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Danny, and uh, I'm going to be uh, taking us through this passage. But actually, what I want to do first is uh, ask you to put a finger or perhaps uh, this sheet into Samuel 8. And I'm going to ask you to flip with me rightwards uh, to the very end of the Bible. So put something into Samuel 8. And I want to introduce this passage, which is uh, essentially a record of David's military triumphs, by taking you to the very end of the Bible and to John's tantalizing vision of the future in Revelation 21. I won't give you a page number. It's easy to find. It's simply the last or second to last chapter of the whole Bible. And we'll be here for a couple of minutes and then we'll come back uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Revelation 21, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And we're in the midst of a vision that John sees of what he calls a new heaven and a new earth. Um, in the early part of the chapter, he's seen the people of God like a bride on her wedding day. He's seen a golden city, the new Jerusalem, fully formed, descending from God. And then he says this, Revelation 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is, in this kind of literature in the Bible, a certain amount of imagery and symbolism, which is seeking to describe the indescribable and picks up themes from earlier in the Bible, such as the temple and the city and so on. But the symbolism is pointing to something real, something solid, something we are meant to understand and something we are meant, in fact, to long for and to hope for. Because what we have here is a picture of a good future in a good world. A picture of peace, safety, stability, beauty, harmony, blessing. And I want to suggest this morning that whether you've seen that picture before or whether this is brand new to you, whether we understand every bit of the symbolism or just get the general picture, I want to suggest that in our heart of hearts, this is a world we all want. A world where the frustrations and disappointments and griefs and sadnesses and regrets and jealousies and lies and injustices of this world are left behind forever. I want to suggest that this is a world in our heart of hearts that we all want. Let me just point out two features of this world. Firstly, notice what is there. 
And then what is not there? Two features. What is there? What is not there? Because notice that John's vision is actually painted in terms of the presence of certain things and the absence of other things. So who or what is there? Well, God is there, of course. Named here as the Lord Almighty. An Old Testament name for God which has its roots in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, meaning the God of armies, the God of warfare and victory. And this person called the Lamb of God is there. The book of Revelation's special name for Jesus Christ. And verse 27, the people are there who are described as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here is a picture of the end point, the goal of the whole Bible. This is the reality that the whole Bible and the whole of human history have been straining towards. A throne at the heart of the universe. The focal point of all things. God and his people. Safe forever. But now notice who or what is absent. We're told there is no temple in this new world because the whole world is now a temple and God's people are as close to God as it is possible to be without priesthood or sacrifice or anything in between. We're told the sun and moon are not there. Obviously symbolism for something. Those lights in the ancient world which stood for safety and security against the dangers and the wickedness of the night because the glory of God is there. The glory of God is the safety illuminating the entire world with beauty and splendor. And notice the glory of all the nations is there too. There is no night, no darkness And therefore, none of the insecurity that means you have to shut the gates against the enemy, verse 25, because there is no enemy. And no impurity, no shame, no deceit. So I want to ask you if you can imagine such a world. As I've been working on this passage, I've just been kind of thinking a little bit this week about how strange our world is. Things we just take for granted. As I was putting the padlock on my garden shed. Just to be clear, there's nothing very valuable in my garden shed, just a, got a couple of old tools. thought, how strange it is that I have to padlock something that belongs to me because somebody else might want to steal the things in my shed. I was thinking when I was on the phone to, I think it was a bank, And you know that thing they do when they have to check that it's you and you have to tell them all your security details and then you get to the sort of that layer of security, it just gets harder and harder and harder. And I'm saying, you know, this this is me. You're talking to the policyholder, you're talking to the account owner, and you get to that sort of level of security that feels like you're sort of on the last round of some TV quiz show, and they're asking you for the first and then the fifth letters of your older sibling's middle name. It's like the most challenging thing I've done all week. And we get so used to it, don't we? But it's actually very odd that someone might not believe that I am who I say I am. That might be somebody else who's trying to get into my bank or my insurance policy, whatever it is. But here is a world where all of that has gone. A created physical world that is immaculately pure, free of every disease. Can you imagine every 
molecule, I don't know how diseases come, molecules, cells, viruses, bacteria, whatever they are, all of it gone, immaculately pure. But notice that the culture, the human society is pure as well. Because no one's trying to steal the tools in your shed. No one's trying to rob your bank. Because everybody loves God. And everybody loves their neighbor as they were created to do. So there's no greed, no hate, no betrayal, no injustice, no exploitation. And every bent and twisted thing, every broken thing is, is mended. Every broken body, every broken heart is healed. And the whole world is flooded with this word from the Old Testament, peace, shalom, the fullness and the harmony of the glory of God. But do you know what the biggest surprise is of this world? Well, verse 27, there are people there. People like you and me. Sinful, selfish, impure people. We can get to be there too. Even though we don't deserve it for a moment. Even though every word of the Bible and every honest thought ought to convince us that even the best of us here has no right whatsoever to walk into that world with our heads held high. And yet there are those there whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's my question this morning. Who or what can possibly make such a world a reality? And second question, who can take you safely to it? Well, come back with me then to 2 Samuel 8, because surprisingly, this passage is here to answer those very questions. And we're going to look at it under the two simple headings that you'll see on the sheet. But before we do, I'm going to pray and ask that God will show us in his word what we need to hear. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this glimpse into the future. We pray now that as we look back on David's life so long ago, that we might hear a powerful word from you this morning that will give us everything we need to hold on to that hope, solid and real. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two headings, and David's walls and David's world. David's walls, first of all. And if you were here last week, you'll have noticed when Joyce began reading a kind of a jar, a sudden change of genre, because we've moved from the prophecy and the prayer of chapter 7, where David, you may remember, was sort of sitting calmly, settled before the Lord, listening to God, speaking to God, and we are now plunged into a bloody battlefield. And it's impossible to miss the violence running through the chapter. Verse 1, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amah from the control of the Philistines. And so it goes on. 
Now, in case we are tempted to somehow domesticate this, or like my wife does when we're watching a, a film that is a little, getting a little bit gory, she sort of buries her face in the cushion. Don't worry, we don't watch anything too gory. We're talking about Batman or something like that. We've never watched anything like Game of Thrones. But if there's anything sort of slightly gory, she'll kind of hide her face. Now, we may be tempted to do this with this passage, partly out of embarrassment that the Bible is so violent, and partly because we don't want to think about these things at all. But we mustn't do that. We must look at it head on for a few minutes. Let me just help us by talking about a couple of key ideas that will show us just how violent this is. First is the word translated defeat, which means strike or smite. In older versions of the Bible, we might have read that David smote the Philistines. It's not a word we use very much, is it? But it's a word that describes the total annihilation of an enemy without mercy. And so what is David doing? He is not engaging in diplomacy. He's not trying to do the sort of British thing of sorting things out over a cup of tea. He's not engaging in cyber attacks. He's trying to kill them. He's trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he's massively successful. Verse uh, 13, 18,000 Edomites. Verse 5, 22,000 Arameans. And probably too many Philistines, Moabites, and Ammonites to count. The second key word is the word subdued in verse 1. That word means to be humbled. It's a word that expresses a loss of honor and position, to be brought right down. And so not only is David killing his enemies, but he is humbling entire nations. He's bringing them into place beneath him. So whether they live or whether they die, he becomes their master. He becomes their king. And they bow to him. And then notice the sheer brutality of some of his actions. Notably the strange, cold-blooded execution of the Moabites in verse 2, something apparently unheard of in history, and then the hamstringing of the horses in verse 4, both which seem especially cruel in our eyes. See, it's one thing to fall nobly in battle, isn't it? But can you imagine the terror of those Moabite men as they lay there watching the measuring line come their way? I would expect some of them to have made themselves very thin, wouldn't you? Kind of shuffled along so they could squeeze inside the line that was going to give them mercy. And it's one thing for horses to fall in battle, but this practice of deliberately cutting their leg tendons to disable them seems incredibly cruel and wasteful. And all of these things have caused a couple of modern commentators I've read this week to brand David as a brutal war criminal. Someone who is acting with barbarism for his own selfish ends. Well, the first thing we need to do then is to think about this. What, is, what do we make of this violence from God's anointed king? Well, I think three things need to be said. Firstly, we need to think about our own judgment. I think, as a general point, we should be careful not to judge the actions of a Bronze Age warrior by 21st century standards of warfare. This is a general point. We should be careful not to 
judge people in history by our standards too quickly. Something that happens a lot today, doesn't it? See, those times were very different to ours. It is possible, for example, to suggest that David's treatment of the Moabites in sparing a third of them was actually quite merciful according to the practices of the time. But more importantly, we should be suspicious of the idea that our time in history and culture is in any way more enlightened than theirs. There is this kind of a narrative around in our society, isn't there, that we have somehow reached a position of enlightenment so that we can judge the people who came before us. I think it's a very dangerous thing to do. Sure, we don't practice some of the practices that they did then, but imagine if someone from David's time were to get in a time machine and come and look around our society. I think they would have some things to judge, don't you? What about the way we treat unborn children? What about the way we abuse our planet? What about our lack of respect for the elderly, the lack of respect for marriage? What about this cruel, weird confusion we are sowing about gender? If our society insists on tearing down statues and judging everybody from the past, rewriting history, we should expect that one day someone is going to do the same to us because morally we are no better. So we should be very careful, I think, about this kind of cultural imperialism that judges those from the past by standards of the present because actually our standards are not that great at the end of the day. But even more importantly, we should be very careful not to stand in judgment over the Bible. Whenever we are tempted to, whenever we find the Bible difficult, whenever we find something disagrees with us or jars with us, then what it tells us is simply that we are not thinking God's ways. Now that is not to say that everything you read in the Bible is approved of by the narrator, but I think in this case these things are. And that brings us to the second observation, which is God's judgment. The second thing we need to say, instead of standing over David in judgment, is to realize that David is actually bringing God's judgment to his world. See, these are not just people that David doesn't like. But this passage fits into the unfolding story of the Bible in a particular way. And as we understand this passage in that context, it makes it clear that these people, these nations, are persistent enemies of God and his purposes. So the Philistines, for example, they were the ones who captured the ark back in 1 Samuel 4, attempting to humiliate the God of Israel. They were God's enemies. The Moabites have been a persistent thorn in the flesh of Israel for the whole of its history. They are the ones who refused Israel's passage through the land at the time of Moses. You may remember the Moabite king Balak trying to curse the people of God through the prophet Balaam back in Numbers 22-24. And in Numbers 25, it was the Moabite women who seduced the Israelite men into depravity and idolatry. As for the Arameans, Hadadezer, his name means storm god, comes to help me. Well, he wasn't much help in this case, was he? But that name, Storm God Comes to Help Me, is a reminder that these people are pagans. Cruel gods they worship. Gods that demanded child sacrifice and prostitution. Gods who enslave their people rather than bless them. 
And so here is what is actually happening in this chapter. God is bringing a just judgment on his enemies through David. David, of course, is very active in this chapter. He's sweeping through his world with tremendous effect. But did you notice that little refrain that was mentioned twice by the narrator? Verse 6, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And again, verse 14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Just in case we attempted to think there is any shred of disapproval here. No, God is doing this. God is using his king to bring just judgment on the world. Now put that into the context of the book of 1 and 2. Some of you may remember that the reason Israel asked for a king in the first place was because they needed someone who would do exactly that. Someone who would get rid of the Philistines, who would disturb them for all that time. This was what Saul failed to achieve and the very thing that David achieved completely. In other words, David was doing what God's anointed king was supposed to do. He was fulfilling his job description. He was defeating God's enemies. That is what the Messiah was there to do. You may remember, I just put it on the screen, it's from the beginning of the book, the theme tune of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She says, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now we've looked at the song of Hannah many times as we've been working through this book. And it's possible, isn't it, to see it as a kind of a lovely song by this this lovely young woman, Hannah. A kind of a, well, I don't know if she's lovely, I assume she was. But this poetic hymn of hope and peace. It's possible to hear it in that kind of gentle way, isn't it? And forget that actually, it's a war song she's singing about God's enemies being defeated, about judgment falling on this world. And this brings us to a third observation. The third thing we need to see, that this is all according to God's plan and promise. And so we need to see the consequences of this terrible judgment that God is bringing upon his world are necessary to fulfill what he had promised to David. Just glance back with me to chapter 7 and verses 10 and 11, where God says, I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. See, God had promised David, as he had promised Abraham before him, a kingdom of safety, an ever-expanding, everlasting kingdom of shalom, of peace and rest and security. But ever since the world had been ruined by sin and rebellion, that kingdom could not come unless sin and rebellion are put down and destroyed completely. You see that this war of David had to come so the promises of God could come. It's only when God's enemies are defeated that the kingdom of rest from enemies can come. 
It's only when the Messiah wages war that the kingdom of peace can come. It's only when God's king reigns uncontested that this world can be restored. And the geography of the passage illustrates this. Just look at the map on the screen. You'll see as we go through the passage that David is waging these wars and the territory of Israel is being pushed out in all directions. So victories to the west, verse 1, to the east, verse 2, to the north, 3 to 5, and to the south, verses 13 and 14. And so the kingdom of God is expanding outwards to the four corners of the world. David is literally taking over the world, making it a place of safety and rest. And therefore, far from being something we should be embarrassed about, far from being something we should sit in judgment over, can we now begin to see that the victory of God's Messiah is something we should long for? It is something thoroughly good. Because only with the overthrow of God's enemies can the rest and peace come. We are seeing here the world becoming a safe place. And when Christians pray your kingdom come, we are asking for nothing less. We are asking for someone like David. Somebody who hates what God hates. And has the power to pull it off. Well, let's take a closer look at the world of peace that David's victories achieve. In the second part of the passage, David's wars leads to David's world in 7 to 18. The second half of the chapter gives us a glimpse of the consequences of David's victory over his enemies. Here is a taste of what it will be like to live in a world ruled by God's Messiah. And I want us to notice uh, fairly briefly three things. Glory, friends, and order. Firstly, glory. Look at verse 7. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berothai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. Now, in one sense, David here does what any ancient Near Eastern king did. You fight the war, you kill the enemy, you take the spoils of the battle. Uh, you don't just leave all that useful metal lying around on the battlefield. And sometimes this comes willingly, sometimes it's forced. But notice what David is doing. He is taking it all to Jerusalem. Now, as I say, this is what any king would have done, but there are a couple of things that uh, we should see more clearly here. Firstly, this wealth is what's going to be used to build the temple. You can read this yourself in 1 Kings 5 and 1 Chronicles 22. But there's an even bigger purpose. Have a look at verse 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. The key is that word dedicated. It means to be given back to God. It doesn't mean that God needed gold and silver and bronze. He owns the whole world already. But it's a way of speaking of the good things of this world, the glory of this world, 
flowing back into its rightful place in the kingdom of God. See, all this precious metal, it's useful. It's going to help build the temple. It's going to help make David wealthy. But there's more to it than that. It actually connects to an important thread that runs from one end of the Bible right through to the other. See, one of the things that's often not noticed in Genesis 2 when the Garden of Eden is described, because we're so kind of interested in the trees and the plants and the animals and marriage and sex and everything else that's happening in Genesis 2, we sometimes miss the little detail that there's lots and lots of gold in Genesis chapter 2. The Garden of Eden is full of gold, much good gold, we are told. And then when we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, we are told there is gold everywhere. The pavement is paved with gold. The city is built with gold. The buildings are encrusted with gold and jewels in the new creation. And this is signifying not some kind of bling, because you might think this isn't very tasteful. We don't want to be surrounded by gold. No, it's symbolic, isn't it? It's symbolic of the glory and splendor and beauty in this creation that is above and beyond what you need for survival. And it's taken. It's captured. And it's put back where it belongs, into the kingdom of God. Listen to Haggai 2, which is also on the screen, where God says of that future time, I will shake all the nations, and the desired of all the nations will come, and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, the kingdom of God is not going to be missing anything good in this world. It's going to be more solid than this world, more beautiful than this world, more real than this world, more brilliant more glorious than anything you can experience in this world. And what is happening here is that the kings of the earth who are against God think that they have a monopoly, a grasp on the good things of this creation. And David's saying, no, all of this belongs to God. All of this is going to find its way into God's kingdom. And it's at this point we find an alternative to being defeated by David. And that is his, in his little king tower. I don't know if he's a little king. I just imagine him as a little king because his name is little. But he's tower, toy, king of Hamath. And he bucks the trend and he becomes David's friend. Verse 9, when Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire king of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. See, here is a wise man. Someone who willingly submits to David's rule. Now, our version lets us down a little bit here with the translation, but it's not as bad as the ESV, which says that he sent his son to ask about his health. Can you imagine? He's seen all this decimation of nations around him, and he pops over to David and asks how he's doing. Better translation, a literal translation, is to say he went to seek shalom. Here is a wise man 
who can see where things stand in the world. And he bows the knee willingly to David. And instead of being the enemy destroyed, he becomes the friend who is welcomed. In the words of Psalm 2, he takes refuge. He kisses the son. And it's an important reminder that it's not necessary to face God's Messiah as his enemy. Yes, those who who oppose him will be overthrown, but those who seek peace will find it. And here we see something we're going to come back to next week, which is, as well as very strong, David is also very kind. And King Tao finds a place of safety. Well, the third feature of the world comes in verses 15 and 18, and it's order. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And then we get some details about the army and the government and the priesthood and so on. And so it sounds like this paragraph is a kind of incidental footnote. It's of interest only to historians. But actually verse 15 is the climax to the entire story of 1 and 2 Samuel so far. If you know the story, you may remember that 1 and 2 Samuel began after the period of the judges, a period of chaos and anarchy and disorder. And the whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel have really been about getting God's king in position so that he can restore order and bring that rest and peace. And now we see that that order has come. David reigns. And in verse 15, two very significant words that are kept together in the Bible and have their root in the very character of God. Notice David reigned with justice and righteousness. Something that has never been seen before since the first man and woman sinned. David's reign is making things right. And he's making things right justly. He's fixing what was broken. Straightening what was twisted. Punishing evil justly. Bringing order to God's world. I asked the team leaders to put together a little description, a little advert for their teams. And uh, they're all great because they want people to join their teams But uh, the one I liked the most was the uh, maintenance team, uh, which said something like this from memory. There are lots of things in a building like this that can break, leak, or blow up. And what we do in the maintenance team is we work out what can leak, break, or blow up, and then we work out who's going to fix them. So see Steve in my left-hand corner if you're someone who can fix things that leak, break, or blow up. But I thought that was a great description, really, of the story of 1 and 2 Samuel so far. In fact, the story of the whole Bible. There is lots in this world that has leaked, broken, blown up. And the question that the Bible has been driving at from Genesis 3 onwards is, who is going to fix it? Well, it certainly isn't the maintenance team. I mean, they, can, they can maintain things. And here we're seeing it is somebody like David. Someone who can rule in righteousness and justice. And then what 16 to 18 is about is just showing that order flowing out into every area of life, into the military, into the government finances, into the nation's worship. 
And so you don't have government ministers who, not, not breaking COVID rules, that's the least of our troubles. Breaking marriage vows. You wouldn't have that in David's kingdom of justice and righteousness. And this order is being worked out through every area of life. And if you want to see how good it is, well, you can do two things. Firstly, go right back to the end of the book of Judges when you see the utter chaos that reigned. And secondly, just look around our world and see the chaos that reigns. Here is the beginning of a picture of what it might look like if God's king reigned perfectly. Now, I said somebody like David because it's important that we just note that David himself is not perfect. And his kingdom, as we'll see, is not going to be the perfect kingdom. There are a couple of hints in this passage, which we haven't got time to explore this morning, which hint at that. One is his sons being priests in verse 18. That was not the right thing to do for various reasons. And the other is this business of the chariots, in uh, the chariot horses. David keeps 100 chariot horses for himself, something that in Psalm 20 he himself says is a sign of not trusting the Lord fully. And this lack of trusting God is something that is going to go on and on and will eventually destroy David completely. Well, these hints make it clear that David's kingdom is not in the end going to be the everlasting kingdom that God promised. But it's a start, it's a step, it gives us the shape of things to come. So that when the true king comes, Jesus Christ, David's great son, we know something of what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come. Well, let's conclude then and think about what it means now to look forward to that kingdom coming. And I want to refer you back to that picture that we saw in the book of Revelation a little while ago. A world of peace, safety, glory, and light. A world without disease, without deceit, without disappointment, even without death. And you may remember I asked at the beginning, what or who can possibly bring that world about? And who can take you safely into it? And what we've seen in this passage is somebody like David. Somebody who is very strong, who hates what God hates, and is committed to ridding the world of everything that spoils. Someone who is so committed to God's purposes that he will destroy all that oppose them. Someone, if I can put it this way, who is so committed to heaven that he actually creates hell. Someone who is so committed to salvation that he brings judgment. Someone so committed to good that he destroys evil. But at the same time, paradoxically, at the same time, someone who is so full of love and compassion and forgiveness that he is quick to welcome anybody, anybody who turns back to him and bows the knee as king. And this is why you'll see the book of Revelation describes Jesus in two different ways, which at first 
seem totally contradictory. And I've put a, a reference on the bottom of the sheet, bottom right-hand corner, where you can see it in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 5. On the one hand, to those who resist him, he is a terrifying, awesome lion. He is the Lion of Judah, the warrior son of David, who have triumphed over evil. In chapter 19 of Revelation, you can look it up in your own time, he is the rider on the great white horse, the spectacular, terrifying, transcendent Lord of Lords, King of Kings. This is Jesus we're talking about, who takes in his hands everything the Bible has said about sin and judgment, from Genesis 3, when men and women first shook their fists at God to the judgment of the flood at the time of Noah, to Psalm 2 and the kings of the earth shaking their fists at God, to David's enemies in 2 Samuel 8, all of that and all of our filth and all of our injustice and all of our ungodliness of all of humanity, he has it all in his sight and he comes on the great white horse And he brings the wrath of God to this world. And we're told in Revelation 19 that he is the one who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He is the Lion of Judah. And so if you oppose him in this life, you'll meet him as the Lion. Very strong, very glorious, very frightening. Someone you cannot get past. Someone you must take seriously. Someone actually who is the most dangerous person in this world. Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever thought of him like that. Lots of images for Jesus, aren't there? But I wonder if you've got that image in your mind. The lion who brings judgment, that's Jesus. But you'll see that there's another image that the book of Revelation gives us for Jesus. It was there in Revelation 21. In fact, it was at the center of things, and you'll see it there in Revelation 5 as well, that at the same time as being the lion of Judah, he is also the lamb of God. Now, of course, the lamb speaks of someone who is gentle, someone who is humble, Someone who is safe. But the Lamb speaks of more than that. It speaks in the book of Revelation of the one who has fought evil and won. The one who has gone into battle against Satan and death and sin. Not with the sword of David. But with his own death on the cross. It is actually telling us that as Jesus stands on the cross, that ultimate symbol of violence, the ultimate experience of violence. He himself is taking the wrath of God upon himself for all the horror of human sin. And he's absorbing that wrath so that he can bring peace. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, He is the one who both at one and the same time makes this pure world possible and can take us safely through. Our family have an embarrassing secret. 
they're all wondering what I'm going to say. <laughs> the embarrassing secret, because we're a family who are kind of quite well known for, for, for liking country walks and so on. But we have an embarrassing secret, and we're scared of cows. We're really, really scared of cows. And so many walks in the countryside, particularly this time of year, can be ruined by a herd of cows standing in your path. I don't know if anyone has experienced this. Now, I say it's an embarrassing secret. It's actually quite rational because almost every week there is a story in the newspaper about someone being mauled by cows. My father-in-law, who grew up as a farmer who has no fear of cows, was mending a dry stone wall a few weeks ago, and he was attacked by a herd of cows. They are dangerous things. We should be afraid. Becca Holden, who uh, works on the staff team, she loves cows. Absolutely loves them. I'm always telling her, Becca, they're actually lethal. <laughs> well, they seem to be out to get us. And so we get on these country walks, we can see the field where we want to get to on the other side. But there's a herd of cows in the way. And we're standing there by the stone wall, cowering, looking at the map, wondering if there's another route. But I haven't quite told you the whole truth. I said our family is scared of cows, but Lachlan, my son, is not. See, he's a big strapping lad, six foot two. And... He has a stick, which he carries in the car with him. And for some reason, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, maybe my father-in-law's genes went to him or something, but he's got no fear of cows. And so when we go on these country walls, Lachlan goes ahead with his stick, like Gandalf before the trolls, <laughs> and he has no fear. And he just walks through them, right through the... And they pass... For him, he's, he's got this kind of aura that he gives off. <laughs> and so on we go on our walk safely behind the one we trust. And that is how it must be with Jesus. Because he is the place of safety. He is the one who faces for us every enemy that we face. He is the one who creates this world, this tantalizing world that is free of sin and depravity and disappointment. And because he has defeated all our enemies, he is the one who takes us there to safety. And that is why in Revelation 19, there is this wonderful image of the rider on the white horse, terrifying as he faces his enemies. But who is behind him? Standing behind him. Like my family standing behind Lachlan as he leads us through the cows. Standing behind him is the army of God dressed in white on their way to the promised land. Safe forever. Because Jesus has defeated our enemies. Utterly confident in his all-embracing love. Do you want to be in that world? Do you know someone who can take you there? 
will take Jesus seriously. This is what our three friends who are being baptized this morning have done. They're going to demonstrate that in baptism. What about you? Let me lead us in a prayer now that will make you somebody who can stand behind Christ as he leads us to the promised land. Let's pray. We've been talking about the king of whom David wrote in Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we do want to acknowledge our fears. Our fears of the enemy the enemy within, the enemy without, our fear of the future, our fear of death, and what lies beyond. But we do want to thank you that all of those fears can be put away if we stand behind Jesus, who is strong and kind, who is both the lion and the lamb. We thank you that we need not meet him as an enemy, but as a friend. We thank you that he is the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed on the cross to wash clean the sins of his people. And he rose from the grave, triumphant over sin, death, and Satan. We pray now that his greatness and his kindness will fill our horizon, that he might be our only hope in life and death, that each of us now would run to Jesus, bow the knee to him, and look forward with absolute confidence to the world that he is going to call his kingdom forever. Amen.